This is the ElectionWise podcast from Minnesota Public Radio News. I'm Molly Bloom. And I'm Curtis Gilbert. Each week we take one of your questions about the campaigns, the candidates, or the issues. And we find an answer. This week, Andy Doucette from Minneapolis wants some historical perspective. Given what happened in 2004 with the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth and the potential for something like that happening in the 2008 elections, I was wondering what the history of smear campaigns were and whether they were effective or not, and also what mediums they used to distribute their messages. That's a good question. It seems like every time campaigns start up, the media, the voters, and the politicians themselves all bemoan the current state of politics, the mudslinging, the smear campaigns. So it might make you think that there was some golden age we're looking for, right? Right. Well... The first smear would have to go back to George Washington. That's Gil Troy. He's a professor of history at McGill University and a visiting scholar at the Bipartisan Policy Center in Washington, D.C. It's a think tank, so I think. And he spent some time thinking about this topic. And smear campaigns... Which he defines as a systematic effort that goes over the top and out of the way to level personal personal attacks on a candidate have been present in American politics since the beginning. There's a very strong and colorful tradition of mudslinging. Washington was called too lordly, too big for his britches. Uh, that is what they wore, right? Britches? To be honest, I'm not 100% sure what britches are, but that was admittedly a pretty gentle smear. The first really intense smear campaigns happened during the 1800 contest between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. It was ugly. Thomas Jefferson was called... An atheist. Too much of a dandy. Someone who's a little bit too French. And Adams was called... Too pompous, completely ineffectual, and too cut off from the regular flow of the people. But this was before the advent of mass media. So campaigns spread the word through pamphlets. There are great and intrinsic defects in his character which unfit him for the office. Word of mouth. The French Revolution was meant to overthrow Christianity and Jefferson. The French Revolution was meant to overthrow Christianity and Jefferson sympathizes. And the newspapers. This period is called the dark ages of partisan journalism. Most papers were affiliated with a party. The Democratic papers heaped praise on Jefferson and slandered Adams, and the Federalist Papers did the reverse. One Federalist paper wrote that if Jefferson was elected, all hell would break loose. Murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will be openly taught and practiced. The air will be rent with the cries of the distressed. The soil will be soaked with blood and the nation black with crime. But as the press started to become less openly partisan in the late 19th century, the parties took to the streets to smear candidates through other means. Songs, posters, doggerel. Doggerel? little ditties. There was this great one about James Buchanan. The opposition was saying that he fathered a child out of wedlock. Mama, where's my pa? Gone to the White House, ha ha ha. Luckily for Buchanan, his opponent had his own problems. He was accused of, among other things, kissing a man too ardently, fathering a child out of wedlock, and shady dealings with the railroad that prompted this rhyme. Blaine, Blaine, James G. Blaine, the continental liar from the state of Maine. Hey, I'm from the state of Maine. Uh Uh-huh. And Martin Van Buren used this song to campaign against William Henry Harrison. Rock-a-bye, baby, daddy's a wig. When he comes home, hard cider he'll swig. When he has swug, he'll fall in a stew. And down will come Tyler and Tippy Canoe. They were extremely creative, extremely colorful, extremely aggressive and extremely good at slinging mud. So with the advent of radio... And television and the internet... People had high hopes for what these new technologies meant for political discourse. Each new technology was greeted as the answer to the ugliness of American presidential campaigning. Radio was supposed to bring candidates directly into people's homes, thereby avoiding the nastiness of parties and their surrogates. Prosperity already tests! 
the persistence of our progressive purpose. Television was seen originally as this x-ray machine, this, this truth seeker that would allow candidates to come even more directly into the American homes because there would be visual as well as oral connection. It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checkers. And there were manifestos written at the birth of the blogosphere about how it would provide an uplifting community of thoughtful political discourse. It was a creed written into the founding documents that declared the destiny of a nation. Yes, we can. In each case, the opposite happened. Yes, there was greater connection between the candidates and the voters, but also, unfortunately, with each time, there was an, an attendant increase in attacks, in negativity, in mudslinging. But how effective are these smear campaigns? Professor Troy says a good smear has two characteristics. A really, really good smear has to have some basis in truth. For instance, Andrew Jackson was smeared by a pamphlet called The Coffin Handbill that accused him of shooting deserters during the War of 1812. He was also accused of bigamy since he married his wife before her divorce was final. All true. It not only needs to be true, but it also needs to resonate about some doubt that the electorate has about the person. And these smears against Jackson worked because he was perceived as aggressive, temperamental, and wild. So does anything constructive ever come out of these smear campaigns? Professor Troy definitely thinks so. He says they can expose weaknesses or make a candidate stronger. Being the president is a tough job. And part of being president is learning how to speak to 300 million people. And if the nominee can't do it, can't respond effectively to smears, then maybe he shouldn't be president. He also says that smear campaigns play another important role. They keep us interested. I think we have to be careful not to dream of some kind of neutered politics, some kind of sterile politics that would lack a little bit of vim and vinegar, and that there's some dimensions of negative campaigning which, which bring out the passion, which bring out the intensity, which show the engagement. And the occasional doggerel. This has been the Election Wise Podcast. We love answering your questions, so please send them in. You can send them to us on our website, minnesotapublicradio.org. Just go to the program's menu, click Election Wise. It's a lot of fun to do. You can also phone in your question or call to say hi at 651-228-4844. Many thanks to Professor Gil Troy, our editor, Mike Mulcahy, the three bases, Weber, Chu, and Olson, and the lovely ladies of NPR News for their help this week. For Minnesota Public Radio News, I'm Molly Bloom. And I'm Curtis Gilbert. Is that good? It's only good when people listen. But if people don't listen to it, then it's no good.